Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This show is your source for in-town forecasts and success strategies, and I sure appreciate you being with us. We have a great show for you today, and this segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. If you're an experienced agent and want to hone your skills, do check it out. Well, today we're talking multifamily, and what a great thing to be talking about because it seems to be uh, that and industrial seem to be the darling sectors, and it's had great growth. Well, what should we expect moving forward? In this show, we're going to have tips for you as an owner, operator, manager, or someone who helps those who are. And we're going to start off by talking about the market and see what's going on there. Please welcome my guest, Jay Parsons. He's VP with RealPage, and he's joining us on the Skype today. Jay, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Michael. So, Jay, like I said in the opening, it seems like multifamily has been doing well for so long. You know, I've talked to you in the past, and it's like, is this going to continue? And you're like, yeah, it's still continuing. It's crazy. But have things softened up some? Where are we today? Well, it's softened up, but I think the better word is, is normalized a bit. Uh, everyone's talking a lot about how supply is going up so much, rent, rent growth is past its peak. But I think what's probably not getting enough attention is that apartment demand remains remarkably robust. Yeah, and that seems crazy. It seems like it should should soften at some point. But uh, yeah. you know, is is it are we getting? Is it because we're getting job growth? Is it because that even some baby boomers are maybe saying it's okay to rent an apartment now? Yeah, I think it's several things. I mean, for first of all, everyone's so concerned about millennials aging up and buying houses, and of course that is happening. I mean, no one really believes that millennials never buy a house or rent a house now that rental single family is a viable option as well for many folks. But there's a couple things that are going on. Number one, we still have solid job growth across most markets in the country, and where we don't have job growth in some spots, it's because unemployment growth is, I'm sorry, unemployment rates are so low. Um, and while some millennials are aging up and buying houses, you still have a lot of young adults entering prime apartment renting age, meaning coming out of college age, starting to rent that first apartment so that that front door remains open. And then baby boomers, as you mentioned, there's a lot of talk about uh, people leaving their homes and renting apartments. You know, we don't think that's happening at any grand scale, but if you think about it, the baby boomers are twice as large as the previous generation ahead of them. And so even if the same share is used to rent apartments, that's still an awful lot of, of additional apartment demand. So there's been a lot of demand. I mean, just in the last, this cycle is now in its ninth year, and we've absorbed nearly 2.2 million units on net over that period. It's, it's really remarkable, and it's more than the units we've delivered in that time frame. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I have a, a primary home, and then I have a second residence, and I really wish my primary home was an apartment. <laughs> it would just be easier, right? Less to deal with. So what do you expect for demand continue? Do you think it's going to continue? How, how long is this great demand going to be here? Well, we, we think what's, what's happening is we see a lot of the, uh, the, the analysts and institutions who look at multifamily and look at broader commercial real estate. Uh, we, we think that it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, a lot of times people forget that apartment demand is simply tied to demographics and the economy. And there's a lot of, I think, overanalysis going on uh, around the apartment market. And so it's really quite simple. If you believe the overall economy will continue to do uh, decently well, then you should believe apartment demand should be strong. Um, apartment demand tends to benefit from job growth and from demographics. Um, and so we know that demographic trends are going to remain favorable for the next decade. So that's a check. And then uh, as long as job growth remains at least moderate, then apartment demand should continue to be strong. Now, it's not going to keep up with supply uh, probably through 2018 and 2019, but we think the demand will be strong enough that the gap is narrow enough 
that occupancy rates overall remain pretty solid and that rent growth remains, you know, in the mid to high 2% range, maybe the low threes, uh, which is pretty much where it's been now for the last year, year and a half. Yeah, well, that's interesting. We're talking with Jay Parsons with RealPage about the multifamily market. So it's normalized. So what what is normal? Well, if you look at the you know, long-term norms, uh, you know it's it's always dangerous. I mean, we don't people talk about reversion to the mean, uh, and, and and the mean is sometimes a little misleading because you just average out good times and bad times, you get to sort of an artificial norm. But I think what we're really getting to is just a stabilization uh, or normalization where we're we're seeing much more consistency in the overall market. Rent growth has been in the mid to high twos now, as I mentioned, for a year, year and a half. Uh, occupancy has been hovering from the uh, right around the 95% range, and uh, which is actually high, but we're not seeing any more growth, obviously, in occupancy. But conversely, we're not seeing vacancy spikes like many had forecasted. But as you look deeper in the data, we could dive more into this if you'd like. But uh, it's not obviously there's a lot of bifurcation within the data, within the markets, within the segments, within by class. Uh, certainly, if you're urban class A, there's a lot more challenges than if you're suburban and class B. Yeah, and is that because of uh, new supply that most of the new supply has been urban? Absolutely. Uh, no secret that investors and lenders and developers have all favored an urban strategy in this cycle. Uh, you could certainly make an argument that's been played out and uh, there's been a ton of supply uh, in those kind of spots. You're dealing with concessions and uh, in some cases rent cuts. Uh, but uh, there's been very little supply in the suburban areas, and at least on, on the whole, uh, we're growing the suburbs by, at a clip of less than 2% in terms of inventory growth compared to around 6% in urban submarkets across the country. Uh, and what's happened is two different things. Number one, no one's really building in the far out speculative suburban areas. You think about what happened in the bust, you know, taking some 10,000 acres of ranch land in Phoenix way out and turning it into 1,000 apartment homes, 10,000 single family houses and a Walmart. That's just not happening. And then where you really want to build in these infill suburban areas with good demographics, good schools, access to transportation, retail, all those things. You know, those are the places where it's just hard to build. And yeah. We've talked about those before, but you got NIMBYism, you got restrictive zoning, and and we really believe that's where the true barriers to entry exist. It's not the downtown submarkets anymore. That you know, that that's been proven. It's really these desirable suburban areas where it's really hard to get deals done. Yeah, I mean, the politician in those markets just feel like, hey, those apartments might be nice today, but in 15 or 20 years, we're not so sure that uh, we want them here, right? Yeah, there's that, and there's also still some outdated mindsets from uh, citizens who show up at city council meetings saying that they don't want uh, apartment residents going to their schools. Um, you know, and you know, even though number one, that shouldn't necessarily be a concern. Number two, a lot, not a lot of kids actually live in conventional apartments. So uh, there, there's several factors at play there. But again, bottom line though is, is there's true barriers to entry that exist in these desirable suburban areas. And what do you see, Jay, for kind of B apartments? Maybe some of the older complexes. How are they faring now? You know, this is really the sweet spot. Uh, if you're class A, particularly urban, obviously you're competing with supply. If you're class C, uh, that's where you start to run a little more into the affordability concerns. You're catering more for a, a working class job segment where you're not necessarily seeing the same income growth that we're seeing in the white collar segments. Uh, but if you're class B, there's a true barrier to entry. In fact, you're actually losing stock in class B because there's been so much value add play. People buying class B assets, upgrading them to a B plus, A minus, A 
asset. Uh, obviously, you can't build a Class B property due to the you know laws of uh, you know what the cost of, of of construction and land and everything else. And so, as a result, you're you're dealing with a demographic that can afford rent growth and also a lot of demand for these Class B units because the gap in rents between a Class B and a Class A property is higher than ever. And so what this means is that even if your Class A new properties are offering concessions for a lease up, they're still not going to pull out your B renters because it's going to take four or five months free to even out the rents. And so we think Class B is, is incredibly well positioned going forward. In fact, operators in many markets of Class B are probably being a little too conservative on rents because, they're, again, there's, there's a true barrier to entry on supply. That gap to rent to Class A is so significant. And so a lot of spots, we think this could really be, uh, if you're just looking for NOI growth for yield, this could really be a strong uh, play over the next five years. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we sell apartments and we sell a lot of Class B stuff and, and, and people love them and, and they do mm -hmm. well with them. And I agree there's a lot of growth. And you mentioned rising uh, construction costs and land costs. So how is that, the, the, and especially construction costs, I mean, how is that uh, potentially going to impact multifamily? Might that curtail new supply? Yeah, we think there's a number of factors that will lead to uh, a slight decline in supply. Uh, we think supply alert on an annual basis will remain north of 300,000 units through 2019. Uh, from there, you're going to see some some moderation. And there's a few factors. There's obviously, construction costs are, becoming, uh, more, are getting more and more expensive. Um, and what that means is you have to pencil, to make a pencil out, you've got to get uh, high rent properties, which are by definition mostly going to be more urban. And that's where you start to run into a lot of additional supplies, so a lot of investors and lenders are getting much more uh, uh, apprehensive about funding those deals. Uh, and then conversely, like I mentioned, the other alternative is to build these infill suburban areas, and there's just a limitation on how much you could do. And so by the time uh, we're looking at you know going out a year and a half, two years, there's there should be uh, start we still start to see some declines in what's actually delivering for those reasons. Yeah. And what do you hear about uh, the Fed's view of multifamily today, or or the lenders' view? Are uh, lenders still kind of gung ho on multifamily generally? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you look at there's different indicators. You look at the Federal Reserve's uh, survey of senior loan officers, and it would indicate that that lenders are significantly tightening their underwriting standards, uh, and there's some apprehensiveness toward multifamily. Uh, but then you talk to lenders, you go to these industry events, and you just don't see that that same nervousness. I think there's still a lot of enthusiasm around multifamily. Uh, you look at banks, their balance sheet exposure to multifamily as a portion of their overall uh, uh, balance sheet loans continues to grow. Um, and so uh, I think overall lenders remain pretty bullish on multifamily. I think what you're seeing is maybe a little more pickiness in terms of uh, the, the sponsors they want to work with. They're focusing more on you know long-term relationships. They're not necessarily entertaining a lot of new relationships, particularly for construction loans. Uh, when you look at the regulatory agencies, I think there's still um, maybe a little bit too macro of a view on multifamily. And I look at some of the the notices they put out, and, and, and frankly, I think they, they, they significantly lack nuance, uh, not understanding that a lot of the issue is top-end and urban, and, and particularly as you look at valuation and pricing, that's it's a very different story if you're urban class A versus pretty much anything else. And I think that's really missing from, from, uh, from, from their viewpoints. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't put them all in one bucket. Um, so Jay, to, to leave us today, where do you think there might be some opportunities maybe for uh, new construction for, for Class A properties at, at what cities around the country might be good, or maybe some B uh, property markets where maybe there's some, some good upside for rent increases? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody has a different strategy, and I think there's still opportunity. It's just going to, you know, we've talked about this in the past. In previous parts of the cycle, three, four, five years ago, a rising tide boosted all ships. You could do anything. You could be the worst operator, the worst developer, and you still do pretty well. Yeah. Obviously, now we're at a much more strategic point in the cycle. And so a few things. If, if you're a developer looking to build, um, I think you're. What, I think a lot of folks have been nervous about maybe paying that price to get in to the most desirable high-end suburban areas because they they still are scared off by that suburban tag, and so they may walk away from a potential deal, uh, even if, if if it was an urban deal, they'd be willing to pay that price, uh, or it'd, it'd look like a great deal. And those spots, I'd be willing to push the edges a little bit. In fact, even on the types of development that we do, if you're in a high demand, high employment, I'm talking high end employment, uh, suburban area, uh, everyone, the, what does get built tends to be kind of your typical garden or rat properties. Very few folks are willing to kind of push the edges on uh, higher end properties. And I think that's where there's opportunity. I mean, you look at uh, you know places like Plano outside of Dallas. You look at the Tech Center in Denver or Alpharetta in Atlanta. I mean, these are high-end areas with all the, dem- the demand drivers you're going to want. And we you know we just we have kind of ho-hum apartments for the most part. So I think there's opportunity there. And you look at Class B. Um, I'd really be looking at those strong uh, job growth markets, high demand markets where you're insulated. There is supply, but it's also because there's a lot of demand, particularly in the Sun Belt, Denver, Seattle, places like that. Uh, and so in those spots, you're going to be insulated from Class A. And even if the market slows, you know that those are the kind of markets that will bounce back uh, once if, if the job market tanks and it comes, it's going to come back. And those are the, the markets that will bounce back pretty quickly. And so there's minimal risk in those markets as well. So those are the spots I'd be looking at. Yeah, well, those are great tips and great information as usual, Jay. Thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. And if you'd like more information from Jay, visit the, their website. It's realpage.com. Well, stay with us. We'll have more on the multifamily market in the U.S., including some tips for operators. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Invest alongside real estate experts, sponsors who have a successful track record and skin in the game. It's as easy as one, two, three. Learn about the deals, make your investment, and grow your financial wealth. Visit arborcrowd.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Are you a commercial real estate broker? Check out Afto, the leading web-based CRE software for managing contacts, properties, listings, and deals. Act on the information in your CRM to strengthen your relationships and grow your business. Visit afto.com slash CRE show. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball, and this segment is brought to you by ArborCrowd. For institutional quality crowdfunding, visit ArborCrowd.com. Today we're talking about the multifamily market. Please welcome my next guest, Gavin Keene. He's Executive VP and COO with the Bainbridge Companies, and he's joining us on Skype. Gavin, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, Kevin, I think one of the big questions that... Uh, it seems like our audience has, especially how long we've had this great time in the multifamily world, is where are we in the cycle, especially related to the multifamily industry? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think different submarkets uh, are, are different innings of the game. Uh, I would think that 
the, on a national basis, we're probably in the sixth or seventh inning. Uh, but I can I can say uh, with some certainty that the other markets, uh, Florida, the Southeast, the in particular, are not that late in the game. Um, I, I think that some of the mid-Atlantic areas, uh, northeastern uh, United States, Midwest United States, may be in the latest innings of the game. Uh, but you know, the the uh, the industry tends to continue to follow the the, this, the same old fundamentals: you know, household formation, population growth, job growth, and uh, where you see. A positive trend in in those dynamics, uh, you always will have a need for more housing. Yeah, it's interesting how the demand continues to to grow. So, what do you think about the demand drivers? I mean, you know, we've got the millennials have, have are a big group. That's I guess your main driver. Are you also seeing some of the baby boomers uh, come to your communities? We are uh, actually the, when you look at the. Demographic curves. The uh, the baby boomers is, is actually you know the biggest part of the fattest part of the curve right now, and we're getting a tremendous uh, influx of the baby boomer generation, empty nesters, um, folks that may have a house uh, in another city and they want to uh, have an apartment uh, somewhere in the southeast in the warmer climate and. Um, we tend to design our apartment units as well as our community amenities around a uh, demographic that could be anywhere from 25 years old to 75 years old. We look to provide uh, a, a large age group with amenities that they would enjoy. All right. So if you had a music, community music somewhere, you'd have to have the Beatles and some rap, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting with the, but you know, it, everyone's got their earbuds now. And right. um, the only time that you really ever see anything on a community-wide basis would be uh, televised sports programming, football, baseball, hockey, basketball, uh, or if someone's having a private party in one of our outdoor uh, El Fresco kitchens or outdoor dining areas where we have uh, exterior televisions, uh, you know, they may, ha they may have something on that the, the yeah. volume will carry off. But, uh, you know, you know around, around these uh, particularly swimming pools and out in our outdoor green space, it's fairly quiet because of the, the, the phenomenon of the earbuds. What are some of the amenities that you guys are doing that maybe weren't done in years past at your new communities? Well, we have community-wide Wi-Fi. Uh, we have uh, a lot of our pools are, you know, wading, wading pools, uh, you know, they're not deep dive swimming pools. Uh, we do outdoor kitchens, uh, outdoor grilling areas, uh, outdoor televisions. Uh, we have out outdoor resident lounges now. You know, in times past, you had a clubhouse with a social room, uh, which migrated into, morphed into a resident lounge. And... We now have a resident indoor resident lounge as well as an outdoor resident lounge with a fireplace or a waterfall feature, and uh, we cyber cafes. Uh, we have, have in all of our communities and uh, business centers, um, and, and you know that is those are amenities that, that appeal to any apartment resident that we have, not just millennials or empty nesters. Yeah, absolutely. What about technology in the units? What are you doing there? Again, you know, it, it, back in the day, you had Cat5 wiring. Uh, now you have, everyone has their own Wi-Fi. 
Uh, we, you know, it's interesting. We have an ongoing discussion as to uh, how smart we want the apartment to be. And um, with the with the fob that turns on the light switch, or your telephone that now controls your thermostat, and uh, and the lights within the apartment, and you know, we are um, well behind that. We like that. We're we're big. We're big uh, supporters of, of the technology within the unit, but there, there gets to be a time when, you know, when, when your smart TVs uh, can watch you and you don't know that they're watching you, we actually have a sensitivity as to how smart we want to make the unit because yeah. who knows what else may be watching you. Yeah, that's a good point. So multifamily's had a great ride. I mean, we've had uh, historic rental rate increases in most markets around the country. What do you guys feel about affordability in the apartment market? I know in some of the urban markets, even in a city like Atlanta, we're getting some pretty high rents per square foot. Is affordability an issue? It is. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a real big issue, um, and uh, you know the the air gets pretty thin at, at some of these rental rates, and particularly when uh, you have these uh, urban buildings that are very vertical in nature and. Uh, you need to have a higher rental rate to support the cost uh, and justify the development of that building. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I do think that, you know, you may, we may run into some uh, softness in that market. Um, our model tends to not be urban driven. We tend to like the mid-rise uh, or garden product uh, with surface parking where we don't necessarily need some of the uh, rental rates that the urban developments would to, um, have them make financial sense, but uh, by and large, I do I do think that there is an affordability issue, and also uh, many cities now are uh, requiring that you provide an affordable quotient of apartments uh, within that development uh, to to, a, to enable um, lower income uh, people uh, into the apartment community that otherwise couldn't afford it. Yeah, well, in these types of communities you're building, uh, so are you doing? Kind of close in suburban and then further out suburban or, or mainly just closer in suburban no we do both okay. we we do both uh we we you know we look for the traditional dynamics we we like uh, direct access onto commuter arteries uh we like direct access to community uh, retail centers and uh workplaces uh and wherever they may be may you know be they uh, may they be close in uh, to urban areas or in some cases further out we like to locate ourselves in and around those those uh, drivers, and um, all all of our residents. We you know we we uh, are very sensitive to to the uh, parking ratios. When we notice that you know all, all of our residents have one and a half to two cars, and uh, when you get into the urban developments, uh, I sat in a meeting about uh, three or four days ago where some developers are providing no parking, and mm -hmm. they are actually going back and giving residents a hundred dollars a month for uh, rideshare programs uh, in, instead of building the parking, uh, necessary parking, uh, which I thought was an interesting twist. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, it's like you're looking into the future that, uh, you know, maybe there'll be a lot less tenants that uh, even have a car. But you mentioned right. residents having a car and a half. I think that's what my son has. He has one that works and one that <laughs> half works. <laughs> He's got a car and a half. Yeah, well, the ratios are usually one and a half to two uh, parking spaces yeah. per unit. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, typically if you have 300 units, uh, you're going to find somebody, there's going to be 450 cars parked out there. Yeah. And you mentioned cost. Uh, we're talking with Kevin Keene, Executive VP and CEO with the Bainbridge Companies. And you guys are, are well known and, and, and have established uh, in, in the industry. But what are you finding just overall with lender taste for the multifamily world right now? Lenders still love apartments? They do. Uh, you know, uh, in, in good times and bad, people still need a place to live. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the office market can soften up and you, you, you see a lot more virtual officing or, and you see hotel officing. Uh, but uh, day in and day out, somebody, everybody needs a place to go home to. Yeah. And um, so we believe that, you know, the better products that are priced right and, and offer a full complement of resident services are always going to perform well. And uh, we are we, we maintain our bullishness for the next next uh, few years, at least through the end of this cycle. Okay, and you guys are you know, buying and own existing product. You third party manage, and you also develop. So, want to get your opinion on the construction industry, the kind of the rising construction costs. What do you see there in increasing costs, and, and how is it impacting the industry, and how might it impact it moving forward? You know, uh, the it's the labor component of the construction costs that are going that are getting to be uh, really uh, difficult to maintain the there is a labor shortage um, and the contractors tend to go where they're going to make the highest fees to themselves and uh, the material uh, components of construction costs maintains a CPI index uh, you know within one or one or two hundred basis points of CPI at all times but we have seen labor uh, go up 20%. Whoa. Uh, really, it really can, really can make uh, justifying new development uh, very, very difficult, particularly in what, what I, what we, you know, urban buildings or, you know, heavy construction, heavy vertical buildings or heavy concrete buildings. It's very, very expensive now. Yeah. Well, that's going to have an interesting impact, I would think, on values of existing product. I mean, if you look at interest rates rising, you would think that might uh, cause cap rates to increase some. Um, but if you have great demand, maybe you have NOI growth. But, but you know, let's get a look at that third thing. If you have replacement costs, if there's a barrier to entry that includes construction costs going up that fast, does that help existing values? It does. Uh, there is still a very, very large appetite for a uh, well-located existing product uh, because it, t it takes out the, the variable of trying to get the project built. Uh, we have a very aggressive acquisition program and uh, we uh, in fact uh, today I, I walked through one of our uh, recently acquired communities and you know, we're refurbishing units we're refurbishing common areas we're adding common area we're adding buildings into our common areas uh, which we find to be much much more cost effective than uh, and this is a very well located structure uh, much more cost effective than trying to build from the ground up yeah what city is that one in it's in Delray Beach Florida Okay. All right. And you guys are all over with the East Coast, and yeah, we develop. Uh, we we uh, have flags in the ground from Miami through Long Island. We basically follow I ninety five up and down the East Coast, and uh, we're in Atlanta. We're in Charlotte. Yeah, we're we're in all the major cities uh, up and down I ninety five. Yeah. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Good information. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. We'll talk right. again soon. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, stay with us. We're going to have more on the multifamily market. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show.
Would you like access to invest in institutional quality commercial real estate with experienced sponsors with small amounts of money? Of course you would. Visit realcrowd.com. Choose between core, core plus, value add, or opportunistic. Visit realcrowd.com. Check out Valuate, a real estate analysis program that can be easily shared with colleagues online to do what-if analysis. Visit GetValuate.com. That's GetValuate.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Apto.com. Check them out if you're a commercial real estate broker. Today we are talking multifamily and we have a fun guest with, with us next here in Studio One. It's Ron Stang and Ron is chairman of Stevens and Wilkinson. They are an architecture, engineering and interior design firm and they're headquartered in Atlanta. Ron, thanks for being with us here in Studio One. Glad to be here, Mike. Look well, forward. it's interesting I think what's going on with multifamily. It's been a incredible cycle, you know, the, the amount of new development and and how strong the market's been in multifamily, I think, keeps surprising people over time. And, and, and you guys are kind of in the forefront of it, right, in the design and, and helping people uh, design these, these buildings. So what's new in multifamily? What, what might surprise some of our audience? Well, gosh, there's a, there's a lot going on. I, I guess density is one of the big things that's new. You know, density all of a sudden is not a bad thing Because it also equals affordability, right? It hopefully equals affordability. Lands, lands costing more. Um, you know, uh, traveling and commuting is a big issue. But anyway, I think density is a big change. And then uh, probably smaller units with a lot of amenities in a lot of the buildings that we're seeing. Um, what type of amenities are you seeing that's kind of new? Well, I think it really depends on the project. For instance, we, we did the, the flats at Pont City Market, which is a big redevelopment, won some ULI awards. And of course, Pont City Market has a huge commercial bottom to it. It's a two million square foot building, um, a lot of retail, use. restaurants. So it had a lot of amenities just built into the mixed use nature of the building. Um, so the residential floors, which was about 260 units, um, really didn't have a lot of amenities. There were some, um, some fitness rooms and some other things, but no swimming pool, no really public or club room spaces that really the project provided all the amenities. But in other projects that are standalone that don't have all that commercial space, I think we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of people doing roof decks, you know, being in a city where most of these projects are, uh, views are great and sort of feeling like you're part of a bigger environment is a, is a great thing. So uh, those are some of the things that come to mind. Yeah. Well, um, the, and you mentioned uh, mixed use and the Pont City Market's a good example of an adaptive use, older building that's done really well. What are some tips, Ron, if somebody's going to develop an apartment complex uh, or invest in one that's in a mixed-use uh, development situation? Well, buy the building as cheap as you can. <laughs> buy low, sell high. <laughs> because it, you know, doing renovations and adaptive reuses, yeah. it, it's not much less expensive and in some cases can be just as expensive as new construction. Uh, I think a lot of people look for for character in older buildings and redevelopments and it really creates a sense of place maybe that's been there beforehand that you don't need to try to recreate. So, But uh, the construction costs sometimes can be as much or more maybe than new development in some of these it buildings? It can be. I, I think it depends. You know, yeah. if you get a building with good bones, it's got, you know, a great structure, a great envelope and skin mm -hmm. and windows, maybe not as much. But, uh, but if you have a building that needs, you know, a lot of remedial structural repair and so forth, it can be 
it can be the same as new construction, maybe even a little bit more, yeah. I think, in terms of per square foot. Yeah. And it's because you're dealing with less efficiencies in an existing building. You know, when you build a new building, you can wring out a lot of efficiencies in terms of just providing the absolute minimum square footage. In, yeah. in existing buildings, you've got to work around structure, windows, existing footprints, you know, depths of buildings that are a little bit different. So, so as architects, do you guys like those kind of projects, or are they just a lot yeah. more work? Yeah. <laughs> we. Uh, we love the adaptive reuses. Yeah. We, I've been doing them for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're all a little different, and I think they all create something special. Um, but we do new construction as well. So we've done a number of sort of new infill projects, both small scale um, and a little bit larger. Are you seeing your clients lean more toward urban, uh, suburban, or, or mixed use? You're seeing any kind of trends of what they like? We really focus on the urban core, and I think that really, you know, the rest of the community has sort of come that way now. Um, you know. A lot of new construction, both student housing and and uh, market rate housing. Yeah, and I think the next move in some of these cities is workforce housing because a lot of the a lot of the apartments are really not affordable for for most people that work and and you know want to be in these housing projects. Yeah. So um, yeah, well, what are the what are the solutions there to affordability? I think a lot of communities around the country are kind of looking at affordability as an issue and the and the work workforce housing. Uh, yeah, give us the. The silver bullet. <laughs> There's no silver bullet. Um, so, I think that, you know, in terms of creating workforce housing, I don't think it can be so much sponsored by government mm -hmm. input and so forth. It really just needs to be done smartly and efficiently, mm -hmm. small units, you know, efficient construction. Um, I don't think it has to be too big, but maybe look on small sites. Are you guys, how do you guys feel as architects about these micro units, these really small apartments? Well, I, I think they're great, you know. Um, I think everybody here got, got their eyes open to them when they went to Ikea and saw the, the small uh, apartments that were fit out there that were either 380 feet or 500 feet or 600 feet. You know, in, in most other cities in America, all the units are a lot smaller than we're used to seeing down here in the south. And I think we're coming to that now. You just don't need a lot of space to live in. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, will you tell my wife that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what about construction costs? I know you guys are having to deal with that like everyone else and, and your clients. Are you seeing uh, construction costs continue to rise and, and how are you dealing with it? Well, I think everybody's dealing with it. It's, you know, there's, uh, there's a volume of work that's going on which is driving costs up, materials are going up. Um, subs are busy you know sometimes and it's cyclical it's either concrete a couple of years ago concrete was very expensive but I think you just got to be smart you got to work with the contractor early on I think people need to realize what a realistic construction budget is sooner in the project instead of being surprised after the project gets designed and then try to whittle away or value engineer it until you know you sort of cut the the meat off the bone um, and if they ask you guys as architects what percentage increases they might want to look at per quarter or per month? Or? Um, they do, and we use yeah. cost consultants to see. I mean, you know, I, they're not rising so fast, but it's just a steady climb, and I think that people get sticker shock when they see what things cost. It's, yeah. it's, uh, and, and one thing that we've seen is happening is, for instance, doing residential in a retrofit or an adaptive reuse, it's a little more expensive than doing office use. Well, now, because of the success of projects like Pond City Market, where office rents in older buildings have gone way up, um, it may be less expensive to deliver office space than it is residential. Yeah. And the rents now are maybe even higher on the office space. Yeah. So 
if you've got a building that could be residential or could be office, you know, the leanings are kind of pushing some people to look at office instead of residential. Even though yeah. residential, there's a huge demand, we think. So. Yeah. Um, well, it makes sense. You don't have all those bathrooms and kitchens. Bathrooms and, and kitchens and, and more walls and doors and, you know, yeah. just, uh, yeah. 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 And now with office being more just kind of open the space, a lot of times you don't have a lot of petition, petition walls. Yeah. You're doing that with furniture. Well, anything else, Ron, you'd leave our audience with related to uh, multifamily as uh, a parting thought? Um, Besides just, buy just, low and sell high, just, which was stupid. Well, no, that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I guess uh, a, a lot of folks that are doing this stuff, they see what one group has done, and we, we sort of have a herd mentality in, in this business, and I think the more innovative everyone can be, the, the better the products will be, mm -hmm. and so the one, you know, the one next to you doesn't need to look like the you know, the one you're doing. So yeah, hopefully yeah. Uh, be a little innovative with some of this stuff. I like that. It's a great tip, Ron. Thanks for joining us. Sure, you're welcome. That was good, Michael. Thank you. And thank you for joining us out there across the country or in Atlanta. Stay with us. We'll have more on the multifamily market. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Promote your business to the U.S. commercial real estate industry. Click advertise at the show website, creshow.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by GetValuate.com. Check it out. It's an excellent online investment analysis tool at uh, GetValuate.com. Well, today we're talking about multifamily. And I think if you, you, you think about multifamily, you do have some employees, right? You have some leasing people, maintenance people, management people. Well, how would you like it if you had more options for those employees? You had more to choose from. How would you like it if your employees stayed longer, right? We hate re turnover, right? Uh, and having to go through the training process again. And how would you like to have all of that and do something good for society? Well, you'll like this. Please welcome my guest, Andy Hilmer. He's Czech Chief Executive Officer with ShelterstoShutters.org. And he's joining us on Skype today. Andy, thanks for being with us. Michael, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, Andy, tell us in brevity, what is <laughs> Shelters to Shutters? You know, Michael, Shelters to Shutters is really a private industry solution to a very public social issue. And it's a, it's a multifamily initiative uh, where we help individuals that are experiencing homelessness find both employment and housing through the multifamily industry. Yeah. So tell us some more about it. So if you're an apartment complex owner, manager, asset manager, why should you consider this and think about it and want to know about it? Sure. Well, as you and your listeners know, the multifamily industry has experienced incredible growth over the last six to nine years. And we hear very commonly from our industry partners about the issue of churn. And you mentioned it in your opening that employers are always looking for great entry-level employees and we're really finding individuals that have uh, the exact skill set that you're looking for but from a talent pool that that most companies aren't looking in 
And where is that pool? Where are these people coming from? So we work with individuals that are situationally homeless. And situationally homeless means these are individuals that have been in the workforce before. They have marketable skills, but through a series of circumstances or bad luck, have found themselves without a place to live. And situationally homeless represents about 70% of all those that experience homelessness. So there's a big pool of people that, again, have been in the workforce before, have these marketable skills, particularly for the entry-level positions in the multifamily industry. So leasing agent, groundskeeper, maintenance tech, things of that sort. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, churn, uh, uh, turnover of these entry-level kind of level employees. So what do you see as normal uh, churn for these uh, positions, and what are you experiencing here at Shelters to Shutters? Most of our partners tell us that at the entry level, churn can be as high as 50% annually. So that, that's obviously a, a huge number. And with S2S candidates, our churn rate's about 13%. Wow, that's significantly better. Absolutely. Yeah, so tell me how does it work? So if I uh, operate or own an apartment community, what should I do, what's the process? So today, Michael, we operate in about 15 cities across the U.S. We work with a network of a little bit more than 100 nonprofit partners. So an individual has to be uh, associated with one of our partners. Uh, you, you just can't call up and say, hey, I love your program. I want to be involved. So we get referrals from our nonprofit partners. Uh, we are provided those, our let me interrupt you for one second. Are those partners sure. on your website? How can we yes. find those? Okay, so we yes. go to your website, sheltersofshutters.org, and see yeah, who those partners that's exactly are. exactly right. Very good. Okay, Absolutely. go ahead. Yeah, and so it'll be city-specific. And so uh, we provide our nonprofit partners with entry-level job descriptions. So if they find an individual that might be a good fit, they'll refer them to Shelters to Shutters. We'll do an in-depth screening. We'll do a background check. And if everything checks out, we'll send them on to our industry partner. And we typically like to send between two and four candidates per position. Okay, so I like that. So I'm not going to see people strolling in for an interview that uh, look like they just came from under a bridge and smell like wine. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly right. These are good people that are situationally homeless. That's exactly correct. So these are individuals, like I said, um, depending on the study that, that you read, Michael, between 56 and 76 percent of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and have less than a thousand dollars in their bank account. So oh. everything essentially has to go just right for them to uh, you know, be okay month to month. And those are really the people that, that we're trying to uh, give a second chance to. So most common reasons people find themselves situationally homeless, uh, sudden job loss, unexpected medical bill, victim of domestic violence, or quite frankly, natural disaster. Yeah, well, it's a great mission, Andy. So who started this and when? Yeah, so it was founded by somebody from the multifamily industry. His name's Chris Finley. Uh, Chris spent his career in multifamily and runs uh, Middleburg. Uh, he was reading an article several years ago about a writer that decided to experience homelessness for three days in Asheville, North Carolina. And a couple things really struck Chris. Number one was this whole notion of situationally homeless versus chronically homeless. Um, Chris, like many of us, kind of lumped homeless into one uh, one group. Yeah. The other thing was you couldn't even apply for a fast food restaurant if you didn't have a permanent address. So it's that vicious cycle, right? How do you get a job if you don't have an address? And how do you keep an address if you don't have a job? 
about the same time he was getting these churn reports that I mentioned from his properties and kind of a light bulb went out and he just said, you know, I wonder if there's a way for me to engage the local nonprofits in the communities where I have property to see if I could find individuals that are situationally homeless. Yeah, so that's fantastic. So this is good for communities where they're looking for employees that are going to live on site, right? That's exactly right. Okay. People live where they work. And so, you know, with homelessness, there are different models, whether it's a job first model or a housing first model. And the great thing about this program is you, you get both, right? You, you live where you work. So you're getting a competitive wage position and you're getting a place to live. Yeah, it's a great program, Andy. So what cities uh, are you in now? Um, so we're based in Northern Virginia. So we operate very he heavily in Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland. We're also in North Carolina, uh, Raleigh, Durham, and Charlotte, North Carolina. We're in Nashville, Chicago, Seattle, Austin, Houston, uh, and Dallas, Texas. Okay. And if some of our audience is in other cities and they like the idea of this, what can they do to maybe get you guys to have this in their city? Absolutely. So I encourage uh, individuals that are interested either in cities that we currently operate or potential cities to operate uh, to reach out to us on our website uh, that you've mentioned a couple times. So it's just shelters2shutters.org. Uh, there's a button to get more information or contact us and we can kind of start the process. Andy, what a great program. Uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for leading it. And thanks for coming on the show and sharing it with our audience. Michael, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. All right. And hey, if you will, share this segment. Uh, get it out there. What a great cause. And if it, for multifamily owners, uh, a great opportunity. Uh, so please share, uh, comment, and connect with us on all your social media sites. And uh, we're going to have another show, a great show next week. So join us. And until then, be sure you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions, Arbor Crowd, Invest Alongside Experts, Get Valuate, Online Investment Analysis, Real Crowd, Crowdfunding with Professionals, Apto, the Ultimate Brokerage Software, The News Funnel, Real Estate News Personalized, CommercialAgentSuccess.com, video training from Michael Bull. To access these great companies or for more videos, podcasts, and articles, visit CREshow.com.